Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a legend. We have a legend that is uh, you know, going to be joining us for this conversation. Someone that has done this with the same company for over 23 years. I mean, unbelievable. You know, his company is now valued at 1.5 billion. Uh, they've raised quite a bit of money too. And uh, he's been around the block, you know, building, scaling, financing, you name it. I think that, you know, the interview today is going to be very enlightening. You're all going to find it super, super inspiring, you know, to really help you all on your own journeys. And without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Srikant Bella Makani. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in India, you moved uh, quite a bit, you know, because of your parents' uh, jobs. But uh, yeah, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Alejandro, I uh, was born in Andhra Pradesh, uh, a state in India. I was I grew up in Assam, Orissa, and Rajasthan. These are different states in different parts of the country. My father used to work for an oil company. So wherever you could find oil in India, I lived there. And then um, I went to uh, one of the IITs to do my undergrad in electrical engineering. Then did my MBA. And then uh, I joined a bank. I did asset-backed and mortgage-backed debt for a couple of years. And then one fine day, dropped everything and started fractal. And it's been a journey of 23 years since then. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit because one thing that really comes to mind is when you move, you know, so many times, you know, for your father's job, I'm sure that, you know, every single time it was new friends, it was like new everything. So obviously the uncertainty, as an entrepreneur, you deal with uncertainty too. So how do you think that, you know, growing up with that, you know, has shaped who you are? That's a great question. We had to make friends every few years. We had to make completely new set of friends. It was painful, but now I feel like I could be anywhere. I could live anywhere. I could make friends anywhere, build a network anywhere, and just you know be comfortable in not being grounded in one location. So even as uh, in the last few years, uh, I have lived in different parts of the world, including New York, Bay Area, and Mumbai. So I've traveled between these places as Fractal has required me to do. And uh, also one thing that, uh, that I find here super interesting in your, in, your, in your story, in your own journey, is that no one in your family was an entrepreneur. And in fact, you know, it sounds like you didn't want to be an entrepreneur either. So why was that the case? Yeah. Historically, my entire family, there was no entrepreneurial gene in our family. And my father used to tell me that an honest businessman is an oxymoron. So... Uh, I grew up with this clarity that I will, I will work for big world-class companies, but I'll never start a business. In growing up in India in the 80s and 90s was was very different. It uh, there was you know it was the industrial licensing era or what was called as licensing raj, uh, and I felt that you needed capital to create capital. So that was one thing. And secondly, it felt like you know it's very hard to be honest and be successful and build a business. So because of these two key reasons, I told myself that, look, you know, I have options of working for large multinational global companies and just work for some really good quality companies and build a career. That, that's what I thought I would do. But things changed. Uh, but that's really how I grew up. 
Now, for you, I mean, you were into problem solving. You know, you started engineering. But uh, you go into something kind of like unique or interesting. You know, out of engineering, you go into like the financial service space. I mean, what, what a transition. Yeah. So, you know, engineering, because problem solving was fun. I was always a student of mathematics. I loved mathematics. I did, uh, you know, a bunch of very interesting math courses to, during my engineering. But what I enjoyed even more than math was psychology. I was hooked onto doing psychology courses. I, I really understand, I really got interested in understanding human behavior, what makes human beings stick. So this combination of psychology and math has been through with, with me throughout my life. So then I went to my business school and one of the things I thought was that if you're not really good at math, you should be in finance. That was a conventional wisdom. It turns out that it's not true. In fact, there's more marketing related mathematics than finance related mathematics these days. And finance is all about relationships and, and, and understanding the law, et cetera. Uh, but my own feeling was that you know, I am a good, I'm good at math, so I should be uh, uh, an investment banker. I should do some asset-backed, mortgage-backed debt. And then it changed once I, uh, you know, once I started understanding the field, I was clear that, you know what, I should do something else with my life. And now I tell many of the youngsters, you know, if you're really building a career, in, a career, a meaningful career, then think again, do you really want to make that extra buck on the, on the stock market with, you know, trading, high, doing high frequency trading, or do you want to do something much more meaningful in your life? And at what point do you realize that uh, you wanted to do something more meaningful in your life? Very early. I think the first year of uh, the first year I joined an investment bank, it was 1998. Uh, Russia had just defaulted on their loans. LTCM, uh, the famous hedge fund run by Nobel Prize winners, had just gone bust. And the whole world looked very bleak. And that was the time I had some, there were no deals to be had. And there was some time for reflection. And that's the time I realized that, you know, this is not really what I wanted to do. Uh, things got better. And I did some very interesting and amazing deals. So math was still fun and finance was still fun, but I was looking for meaning. And entrepreneurship was one of the ways in which I thought I would provide meaning to my own life. But I mean, that's like um, a, a big shift because obviously in India, you know, people, they, there's a lot of pressure, you know, cultural pressure towards studying in the best universities, getting the best degrees, working for the best companies. So you had achieved all of that. So I'm sure that, you know, that shift, you know, into entrepreneurship, into the unknown, something that no one in your family had done, I'm sure it was not an easy, an easy leap of faith. So, so how did the whole idea of entrepreneurship, you know, come to mind? And then how did you go about embracing it towards launching, you know, your company? You're right that uh, it was hard to make that entrepreneurial switch. And entrepreneurship was not fashionable. These days, startups are very fashionable. 20-something years ago, uh, startups were not uh, so exciting. People, people used to have need to protect their jobs and, you know, work for high-quality companies. And it was very difficult for startups to attract high-quality talent. It was difficult to attract capital, but it was even more difficult to attract talent back then. So in, in those days, it, you know, the one thing that helped me was the dot-com craze. It was the late 90s, of, you know, around 2000. So there was incredible amount of excitement about the, about the dot-com world. And therefore, there were a bunch of friends of mine who started businesses. I felt like, you know what, I can raise capital. And I saw a company like Infosys. Infosys was one of those tech companies in India, which was known for its ethics and values. In a business school class uh, called, uh, it was called business ethics. Uh, 
one of the founders of Infosys showed up in that class. His name is Narayan, his name is Narayan Murthy. And he talked about how he built Infosys on values. And I was quite moved by that experience. So when I look back, that one lecture that I attended, guest lecture by Narayan Murthy, and the fact that my friends were able to start businesses, really removed the friction between me and my ultimate purpose in life, which was, which was to build a great company that lasts the test of time. So entering fractal analytics, at what point does the idea come knocking and how do you go from incubation to launching it? Yeah, so we, we were a bunch of people who got together and we wanted to be entrepreneurs. We really didn't have an idea. It was those days, that 1999, 2000, you know, there were so many people starting companies. So we actually got together, quit our jobs and then started searching for ideas to do. I mean, I would not recommend that to anybody right now. But back then, we were somewhat younger and foolish. Uh, and therefore, we did that. And then it soon, after doing some you know, trial and error, we figured out that we have to go back to what is our strength. So when we did that soul searching, math and psychology came to, came to rescue. So and I proposed to our founders, co-founders, that you know, what if we use math and psychology? What if we use data to drive uh, you know, mathematics to drive decision-making? This was a new idea back then because while you know people had known and you know analytics and AI were concepts in the in, in universities, companies using analytics and AI to drive decision making, or companies specifically providing analytics and AI for decision making was a complete a new thing. So we tried this out. We built a mathematical model to with a bank to predict their customer defaults and to automate, and we created a 30-minute loan product where you could walk in and get a loan within 30 minutes uh, using analytics and AI and a scorecard. And that was very intoxicating because A, we could predict customer behavior. We could, we could figure out who could who default and who would not default. We could use mathematics to do that. So this is a really ideal combination of mathematics and human behavior. We said, this is exciting, this is meaningful, and this is an area of our strength. So this is where we should be. In the next many, many years, we started building this company and because analytics and AI were in nascent industries back then, it was very hard for us. But over the years, it has become very, very exciting and interesting. And there's so much funding and so much excitement right now in the world of AI that it, that decision 23 years ago has been validated now. Now, for you guys, especially for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of fractal analytics? How do you guys make money? We work with Fortune 100 to Fortune 500 sized companies. We are one of the strategic partners in driving their analytics and AI transformation in their companies. And we get paid for you know, delivering those outcomes, uh, setting up our teams and working on those projects and really making them really good on their digital transformation. So this could be around customer insights or customer analytics or personalization or reducing friction. It could be about improving their productivity managing their risks, managing the supply chain, those kinds of things. It could be about building new products and innovation. It could be about just reducing the latency of their decision-making, or it could even be about securing their future in terms of a business model or reinventing the business model. But we try to bring analytics and AI to power all those decisions. That's the model. And you get paid for driving those projects, building those teams, and driving those outcomes. Now, now that we're talking about customers, I know that at one point, you. Uh you were all present to the fact that you were being a little bit arrogant with customers. And in fact, you know, you did something there to turn it around and to become more customer centric. So walk us through what happened there. Yeah, this is a, this is a very interesting um, aspect of our evolution. 
very early on, we were really excited with the craft of analytics. We are a cool AI analytics company, and we really enjoyed the fact that we could teach the whole world how to build mathematical models to predict customer behavior, et cetera. So we were really excited about that. And customers or clients were just incidental because it was an opportunity for us to use the craft. We did not realize it. We thought you were always very client-centric. In fact, client value creation was one of our values, one of our seven values back then. So we had a consultant, uh, an, a co-executive coach who used to be a CEO of a consumer goods company. He, after retiring, he became my coach. He came to the office. Uh, he wanted to coach me and he spent a couple of a couple of days and he said, you know what, let me tour around the office and spend a day or two to understand your culture before I can come and help you. So after those two days, he came and said, Shrikant, you are the most client unfriendly organization that I've ever met. I said, I was in complete denial. I said, no way. We have, we have solved such amazing problems. We are so good at serving clients. What are you talking about? He said, no, you never have client conversations in your office. You're always talking about the craft of analytics. You're never about delivering outcomes to your clients. And really, you're very customer unfriendly. So I took that to heart. I processed that feedback. You know, I, with me, what happens is I'm really bad at receiving feedback. I, I resist. I, I, my first instinct is to, is to say no or to reject the feedback. But after that, I go and process it. So I went back home. I processed it for the next couple of days. I brought my exec team together and told them that this is what I heard from this gentleman who's an executive coach. And I need to re we need to reflect on this. And after we spent a few days reflecting on this, we said, you know, we have to make a big change. Yes, he's right. And we have to make a big change. And we developed a whole new strategy about how we will be, how we'll learn the idea of client centricity. One of the things we did was to start measuring our net promoter score, that we will look at our client feedback as an indication of our success. What value have we delivered to them? And how do they process, how do they think of Fractal? Will they give us more business? What is their feedback on Fractal? And once we made that as a central point of how we rate our own success, we started making improvements. So first time we measured NPS, our NPS was a single digit number. As you know, NPS is called net promoter score, which is you look at the number of people who give you nine or 10 on the question of will you recommend fractal to others? You look at the percentage of those people, you subtract the six and below ones. These are called detractors. So promoters percentage minus detractor percentage gives you net promoter score. So our first net promoter score was a single digit number, which is pathetic. So, and now for the last many, many years, our net promoter score is 70 plus. So we made the big transition. And I think it's one of the things that we learned as a company, which has driven fractal success over the years. And as you're talking about over the years, you know, long-term thinking, how do you guys apply long-term thinking when it comes to the, you know, dealing with customers, when it comes to, you know, really understanding where you want to take the company, you know, to, how do you guys think about that? One of the things I learned from Jeff Bezos, I learned two things from Jeff Bezos, which we have used in practice. Number one is client centricity or customer centricity. So Jeff Bezos's philosophy is be so customer centric that you should invent and invest on their behalf, on behalf of customers. Customers are wonderfully dissatisfied, but they don't know what they want next. You have to invent on their behalf. So we have taken that and we have actually done a lot of work in in not just serving our customers or clients very well, but also inventing and investing on their behalf, investing something like 10 to 12 and a half percent of our revenues on R&D. The second one I've learned from uh, Jeff is, is exactly what you mentioned, which is long-term thinking. And Jeff says in one of his interviews with Charlie Rose, which I watched in 2009, he talked about how uh, as Amazon, they think seven years ahead of the curve. Whereas 
most people, when they think long term, they're thinking three years or five years. So this is something that I have you know, tried to process over the years. And we as a company, what we have done is think of creating an institution that will be there for the long, for the long term. It means that we have to take a very long term overview of our clients. So clients are, these relationships are very important. And even if a client asks us to go, we have to serve them really well. And we've seen that people, when they quit organizations, they go to other organizations, they call Fractal to work with them. So I've seen this work very well for us. Second, how do we treat our people, especially on their way out? We treat them so well that they are Fractal's biggest brand, brand ambassadors after they leave Fractal. So the universe of people who don't work for Fractal is much larger than the universe of people who work for Fractal. But if we treat those people well, they become our brand ambassadors. So we've seen that work. A lot of our business comes from ex-Fractalites as well. And three is how do we treat our investors, especially on their way out? So we've seen that also. If you take a long-term view of investors and we especially make their exit very smooth, we've seen that they obviously speak well of you, but they also come back for seconds. So we've seen multiple people who have invested in Fractal, got the return, and then invested in Fractal from another fund, in maybe from another organization. This has happened quite often as well. So overall, the idea is think very long-term, build those relationships, because these world is really small. And if you want to be there for the long term, these things come back to you. And if you do good karma, it comes back to you as a force multiplier for your own future success. And I, and I love that. I, I think that that's really, really profound. And we'll talk about the investment cool. side in just a little bit. But uh, on the employee side, you know, that you were alluding to, which I think is, is a fantastic, uh, you know, piece of advice also for everyone that is listening. You know, when the, when the employee is on the way out, you know, you're probably, you know, typically people, you know, have the ego, they're mad or upset that, you know, they've invested all that time on an employee and the employee is leaving. So it's, it's hard, you know, to to really, you know, uh, execute on that. So the fact that you guys are doing that, you know, is remarkable. So give us a good example of how you, you know, treat an employee on the way out. Yeah. One is, you know, understand that they are here to build a career. There is a journey that they are on. For example, we, we hire a lot of undergrads who want to go to grad school after a few years at practice. And we make it we make it very easy for them to do that. We actually encourage them. I write recommendation letters. Many people in fractal senior stakeholders write recommendation letters so that we build their career. They're here for a few years. We know that. And as part of that evolution, they're going to another another place. We also, uh, what I've seen, you know, I'll give you an example of the biggest client that we currently serve actually came from a person who left fractal in 2006. And he called me in 2016. And he, 10 years after he had left, and he said, Shrikant, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've, you know, I've connected with you. I have an opportunity for you. There's this, you know, great Bay Area tech company that wants to, uh, is looking for analytics and AI vendors. I think you'll, Fractal will do a great job. Can I make an introduction to you? I said, sure, why not? And that has become one of our largest clients. And this is just one anecdotal thing, but there are multiple examples that, because we've treated them really well, they had a great time. When they look back, they feel like this was the best time for their learning. We invested in their learning. And when they exited, we made it extremely smooth for them. We continued to stay in touch with them. We invited them to our events. They feel like uh, they have left Fractal, but Fractal is still inside them. And that is what creates that kind of a feeling or emotions that, that they have towards Fractal. That sounds like sense of belonging, sense of community, which I find you know super important. 
Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieverson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, you were talking about investors too, as we're in the topic of people. And when we are talking about people here and when we're talking about investors, ultimately the people that you're going to be bringing on and and, and really helping, you know, with not just with fueling with, with money here, but then also with strategy and, and network. Tell us about how that investment, you know, journey has been, because you guys have been at it for over 20 years now. Uh, you know, people that have invested, that have exited, that have come back again and invested it again. So just to start off, you know, on this topic, how much capital to date have you guys raised? So we as Fractal have raised 685 million of capital over the years. Uh, much of this is secondary, uh, secondary uh, transactions. And in our subsidiary called Cure.ai, which is now, uh, you know, we are a minority shareholder in that. We have raised another 60 million in, in that subsidiary. And we have a couple of other startups which have also raised small rounds of capital on their own as well. So that's been the fundraising journey. The first time we raised some money was when we just started they were friends who wrote me some checks uh, and wrote some of my co-founders some checks. And these people, you know, we went through a lot of ups and downs, but we made sure that all of them made a ton of money. They got 400x of their investments. And first time we got institutional round, which was 13 years after we started the company, we made sure that they exited and they got the return. And I, I specifically called each of them and said, look, you were wonderful, wonderful to us because you invested when we did not deserve your trust. I know we can, you can make you know a 400x of your investment right now. Would you like to exit? And they, uh, you know, they, they some of them exited. Some of them have continued to stay on. In 2013, we got TA Associates, which invested 25 million. They exited in 2019, and then you know some of those uh, people who exit, exited have actually followed up with me, and they've been interested in in investing in Fractal yet again. In 2016, we got Kazana, which invested 100 million, and um, you know they exited in 2019. But you know some of the stakeholders were who were part of our board and our chairman of our board. Now he's actually agreed to be an independent a, a director on Cure.ai's board, which is our subsidiary. So again, he's come back. 
And one of the investors in TA has is now at TPG, and TPG invested in Fractal in 2021. They invested 360 million. So I've seen this play out that because we have treated our investors well, and because we've actually you know you know returned a good multiple of what they invested in, they have always come back. And there's good karma overall about what Fractal is and how Fractal is is a ethical, honest company that's doing that that's doing great work and actually will do right by its investors. But it has not been a walk or a path full of roses because, I mean, you've had also investors that told you to your face that they liked the business, but they didn't like you. How do you, yes. how do you take that? How do you take that punch? Yes. It's in fact, uh, thanks for reminding me that on, of that one. Uh, this was 2009-10, uh, and these were obviously tough days for Fractal. We, were, we had not raised a single round of institutional funding at that time. So we had... This was a senior of mine from my undergrad. He was one of the smartest guys uh, during my undergrad days. He had he was part of a fund, which is an American fund, and he was the India head for this American fund. So his U.S. counterparts and he visited in, visited uh, Fractal's offices in Mumbai at that time, and spent a day and a half, uh, you know, spending spent a day a day or so with us. And at the end of that day, he gave me feedback. He said. Shrikant, we really like your business. It's really good. Analytics is a good industry. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to invest in your company. I said, why? Look, we like the business, but we don't like you. So it was, uh, it was very hard to receive that feedback. So I said, really? He said, yes, the, 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 the space is good, but we don't think you can scale this business. We've seen you at work, and you are not the kind of person who think we think can scale this business. So it was a very hard-hitting feedback. Again, I was in denial for the first uh, day or so. I processed it. And the next day, I uh, invited our executive team. And I shared with them that this is what happened. I wanted to make sure that the executive team knows that it's not because of them. It's because of me. Because we, we were doing these fundraising rounds and we were having we we're running into you know problems. I want to make sure that they know that Fractal as a business is good. It's the, the problem is with me. And that, that was my strategy at that time. And, you know, and I also started working on it. I said, I told myself that I need to get better in order to be a better leader for Fractal. Or Fractal needs a better leader in any case. I think this has been the, uh, this has been the theme for me throughout my life. Now, in this case, you know, for you, like you were alluding to it, when it comes to the, um, you know, allowing the investors, you know, on the way out, how do you do that? You know, if there is like no, um, let's say, acquisition or IPO or liquidity event, you know, how do you structure that so that, you know, those investors, you know, can actually cash out and, and leave? Because I mean, as, as many of the people that are probably listening to, to this episode right now, you know, obviously when, when, when a VC, you know, creates their own fund, they have their own limited partners that are investing as investors in that fund. And they're expecting that fund to, to return back the money with returns on a, you know, percentage on a period of time, which typically is like anywhere between, let's say, seven to 10 years. So once you're past that, the pressure, you know, really it's going to build on from those investors to want to get their money back with returns. So in this case, you know, ultimately the VCs would put pressure on the company to go through a liquidity event so that they can get the returns and they, they can provide that uh, money back to their own LP. So in this case for you guys, how did you go about giving that money with those returns to the investors without having to go through a, a liquidity event? That's a, that's a great, great point. I think you know fundraising is a decision that you're making, 
and every decision has its consequences. And one of the consequences of the fundraising decision is that you have to align your interests with the investors' interests. And investors have a limited time frame, whereas you as a founder is probably building this company for the much longer term. And therefore, there could be conflicts. And therefore, understanding that, look, I am making this compromise. As part of this fundraising cycle, I am promising them one way or the other that I will find an exit for them in four to six years from now. Right? And therefore, start thinking of that and preparing for that in year three or year four so that you can actually provide them a good exit and not really complain about it. I've seen many people are very good on the way in, but on their, uh, when, when it's time for investors to exit, they, they say, hey, but it's not right for the company, etc. No, but you agreed with this deal. You agreed with this deal that you're bringing an investor in. Therefore, give them the exit that they deserve. Because this, this is their business model. Their business model is about running a 10-year fund where you invest and then you exit in four to six years and then you create that return. That's the business they are in and they're going to maximize their business outcomes. You have a different, different business, which is building for the long term. And you somehow wanted to come together. So if you come together, then align your interests and therefore look for that exit. So what we did was in each of these situations, we found new investors who can come and do a secondary transaction and buy out the existing investor. Thankfully, Fractal was, was you know, growing nicely, nicely profitable, nicely growing. So we could, we could have these transactions take place. The one thing we did not do is to complain about it. We had this very clear, clear understanding that, look, we will do our best to provide you the exit. We will, uh, we will, you know, sort of prepare the information. We'll, you know, do a sort of a, a run a process and get you the exit that you're looking for. Because this is part of building the company for the long term. Multiple people will come. Multiple people will go. If you make that entry and exit smooth, then you will have the pathway to building a great company for the long term. Now, as we continue here on the deal-making side of things, you know, you guys have also been very active on the acquisition side. You've done over 10 acquisitions. How do you guys think about acquisitions to grow? Uh, and then also, how do you think about integrating them successfully? Because most acquisitions typically fail on the integration. That's, that's so true. So I think we've made our fair share of mistakes in acquisitions. Uh, and luckily for us, the first few acquisitions we made were very small. And by design, we made, you know, the first acquisition we made was just a little acqui hire. It was just three, four people. And we bought a little piece of software along with it. And we spent a very small amount of money. And this was a complete write-off. It didn't really, the people left very early and the software wasn't very useful. So it, we, we wrote it off. That was the first, in, first thing we did. But thankfully, it was a really small, very small deal, even in our, in our, from our scale. And then, then we did the next one where we learned some of the tricks. So we bought um, a company called uh, 4i, which was Chicago-based. This was in 2017. And um, this, was, this had a big presence in Ukraine. And this was very helpful in a consumer goods industry where uh, we had some very good consulting capabilities came through this acquisition uh, of 4i. So that was, uh, that was helpful. Again, we got some things right in the sense that we, we knew the strategic fit but we were, not we were not able to retain the founders for too long. One of the things I always think of as a success criteria for, uh, for acquisitions is, A, can you, uh, what do you think of it five years after the acquisition, number one? And two, can you retain the founders for that long, five years or more? Because if you've done both these, I think then you really have a good successful acquisition. That is at least our thinking. 
So we had these founders for four years, but they eventually left um, in, in 2022. So this, is, uh, this has been one acquisition. Then we bought a company called Final Mile, which is a behavioral sciences company. And again, what we learned here was bringing in a sharply new capability to Fractal. Now, Final Mile, Chicago-based again, and is one of the you know, leading behavioral sciences companies in the, in the world. And they've done some amazing work. So when we brought that capability in, we could bring that to all our clients because now we could bring data science and behavioral science together. This is how we started partnering with them six months before the acquisition so that we could test out this proposition of bringing behavioral science and data science. Because look, we power every human decision and human decisions are mostly judgment and intuition and emotion-based. Therefore, understanding how humans actually make decisions through behavioral sciences would actually augment the data science way of making decisions that we had mastered back then. So by bringing these two, we tested that proposition out and then we acquired the company. And it's been one of our most successful acquisitions because this has helped us in solving much bigger and better problems for our clients. So over the years, we've kept refining this. Last year, we acquired Neil Analytics, which is one of the, it's a great Microsoft uh, gold partner and it, uh, it's Seattle headquartered and does some amazing work in the engineering and AI space. And now, so we felt confident that we could do a much better acquisition. This acquisition had about uh, 250 people uh, with it, uh, big organization, big integration plan. And, and then we sort of have built a plan to integrate. So what one of the things we learned is do not first acquire and then think of integrating. Think of integration from the time you've actually conceptualized the, the acquisition in the first place. So we built out an in integration team and started involving them. As soon as a deal became serious, our integration team got involved in thinking through the steps of integration. And that's one of the things that we learned over, over time. So yes, we made some mistakes, but over the years, what we've learned is you know, make, keep the mistakes small, do some experimentation, and over time, bring integration thinking right into the acquisition overall. And the last point I'll make is retain the founders. The founders are super important, especially if you're buying small to mid-sized companies, the soul of the company is really in the founder. If, if you lose the founder or the founders, then you lose the essence of the company and you may not get value for the acquisition. So how do you make sure that the founders and the, and the senior executives in that company have path to success and career inside Fractal is something that we've learned over the years and that's helped us as well. So let's talk about over the years. Let's talk about the future here. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world where the vision of fractal analytics is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, that's an amazing question. So fractal's vision is to power every human decision. And we think of a world where the boring and the, and the mundane tasks are automated so that we can imagine and create the future, right? So that future would be a future where, A, every business is customer-centric. Right? Just imagine, you know, every business is super customer-centric. There's no friction between your actions and your intent. Right? So if you wanted to go and buy something, you can, you know, it's frictionless commerce, like Amazon's one click. We can enable that. This productivity, you know, there's no wastage because everything is so, you know, we have done the right supply chain forecasting, we've done the right employee planning, we've done the right risk management, so we don't lose any money and waste any money. We build new products and new products are not failing, but they're succeeding. The latency between when a customer you know, buys a product to when I'm making a decision is zero. I'm making businesses becoming real time. 
and business are becoming sustainable because now I'm optimally used, utilizing all my resources. In that world, that's the world, right? And it's, it's a fascinating world. The only dangerous thing is, will there be enough jobs? That's my only fear is, okay, we have an AI utopia, but in an AI utopia, we may not have enough jobs for everybody for the 7 billion or 8 billion people on the planet. I love that. And, and, and now, obviously, you know, with the AI, you know, with ChatGPT and, and, and all of this talk, I mean, where do you think also, you know, the, the world of AI is taking us? Yeah, this, is, this is the most uh, defining year for the world of AI. 2022 to 2023 has been the most significant year for AI in my living memory. Because what we have seen in terms of the significant breakthroughs, two significant breakthroughs I will talk about. One, we all know is ChatGPT. We've talked about it. You've talked about it just now. And yes, it is a breakthrough, not just because it's you know, it's a nice, cute um, place where you can ask questions and get answers because of what it is doing. It is actually saying, give me all the data in the world and I will extract all the knowledge from it. Right? That is amazing. Right? The, the way it's able to extract knowledge from data, it's able to reason with data is unparalleled. And because of that, it will become a foundation to everything. All decision-making will all be augmented in very not so near, not so far distant future. A chat GPT or some assistant will be helping us in doing many, many activities. So that's very exciting. But the other one that people haven't talked about sufficiently is what DeepMind did in July of 2022. They actually released the protein structures of 200 million proteins. This is quite a game-changing. Because this has been a problem, it's been a grand challenge in, in biology for the last 50 years, and they actually solved that grand challenge. So if you if you think of proteins, the three-dimensional structure of protein is something that you know it sets settles itself into automatically. But to because the proteins are so small and they you need extra X-ray crystallography to actually see the structure of the protein, and even then it's very hard. So a PhD student spends their entire PhD in deciphering the 3D structure of one protein. So what uh, DeepMind did, DeepMind is a division of Google, what they did was they basically said, okay, if you give me the chemical formula of the protein, I will predict the 3D structure within one angstrom, within one angstrom. And they actually have built a beautiful model, which I think is almost Nobel Prize worthy. And they released the, the protein structures of 200 million proteins as of last year. It will mean breakthrough stuff in, in the world of pharmaceuticals and vaccines and others. So again, what we're seeing is AI is doing magical things. In the last one year, it's, it's done some amazing things. So I think future is going to be great with AI, but it also has some risks, especially if responsible AI is not there. If we do this very hastily, it might create, some, destabilize the world economy because of the, way it, the impact it has on jobs, it has on competitiveness, labor versus capital. There are some risks involved, but overall AI is a force for good. Now, you have a superpower that we're going to be disclosing here, Srikant, you know, to everyone. And the superpower is that you read about 100 books a year. Now, when it comes to absorbing the information, to digesting that information and to implementing that information to your own journey, whether it's personally or professionally, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so firstly, I, I read a lot because I feel like a book is one of the cheapest ways to get a lot of learning. You know, some, somebody has put their entire life's work into a book and you have to pay $20 to buy it. Right? I, I find it to be an incredible bargain if you are good at selecting the right books. So I try to read as much as possible, especially 
I like uh, science and technology and science and engineering type of books. I like memoirs where people write their life stories. Uh, I read a lot of fiction as well because I, I find it to be a great way to empathize with, with, with human beings and, and the world at large. So I find it very useful. What I try to do is, you know, I try to uh, get a multimedia experience of reading. So usually I'm reading and listening at the same time. So I would have my Kindle version with, with, with Audible attached to it so that I can actually listen and read at the same time. That's the, my favorite way of doing it. And that helps me stay focused. And sometimes actually I'm walking when I'm also listening. So this keeps me completely focused on the book because I'm completely occupied in all other ways. My only focus is re- listening to the book. And then I try to implement, whenever I learn something, I try to go and implement that. I have a conversation with my colleagues the very next day on this is what I learned and brainstorm with them. I have some very smart colleagues. And when I brainstorm ideas with them, they sort of, I, I retain those ideas much better. And I, I never have a problem in rereading a book. If I loved a book, I don't mind going and rereading books because, because it's so valuable. You read a second time, you get more out of that book. So imagine I was to now put you into a time machine. And I put you into a time machine with all these hundreds and hundreds of books that you've read, with those 20 plus years of experience, you know, in, in the startup world. And I bring you back in time to that moment where you were working in the, you know, financial service space, you know, doing investment banking, and you're able to have a chat with that younger self. And you have the opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? The one piece of advice I'll give my, my younger self is be bolder, take greater risks, and think even bigger. I was, I think I was, when I look back, I could have taken a bigger risk and painted a bigger vision for Fractal right in the, in the first year. And these older people, now I'm one of those, <laughs> they, you think that they have all the answers, but they're as clueless as you are. Sometimes you feel like, you know, I am so young, I'm, I don't have, I need to spend some time in gaining experience. But I think it's a young and the foolish who change the world. So I would have, uh, I would advise myself to be bolder and take bigger risks as an as an entrepreneur, as a as an as an executive. I love it. So Srikant, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? I'm on LinkedIn, um, so please do check me out on LinkedIn. I'd uh, love to uh, stay connected on LinkedIn, and you can write to me at Srikant at Fractal AI. Let me spell it for you: S R I K A N T H at Fractal, that's spelled as F-R-A-C-T-A-L dot A-I. Easy enough. Well, Srikant, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you, Alejandro. It has been great chatting with you today. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.